I think you're more, more nervous now because you feel like the stakes are higher because you've told people about it. Yeah, I mean, I, like, before I had nothing to lose now. I mean, and I guess I still don't have anything to lose. So finally, after over a year, the Seven Stars podcast is back. I've got a new guest with me named Gerald. We were talking a little bit about some of the current events going on in the world, and I thought, you know what? It's time to finally put another podcast out. I've missed talking to you guys, missed uh, getting some of your input, letting you hear our thoughts on just some of the things that are going on. And so, Gerald, welcome to the Seven Stars podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Tim. Um, Yeah, it's great. Um, I, I, I'm very interested in, in uh, a lot of foreign policy, a lot of domestic policy, and it's been a, a crazy news cycle for the last few months, if not last few years. So it's finally good to have you know a discussion and, and talk it out. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I mean months, years, but more importantly, it's been a crazy few days and weeks. Right. Uh, just like in the past week, obviously the midterm elections came back. Um, you and I talked a little bit about the election going into it. We were both pretty nervous on Tuesday and a little worried. Um, and in the House, it looks like the Dems are going to pick up. Uh, my most recent count saw they've got 226 seats, 538 is projecting and pick up 38 different um, House districts that were previously Trump and previously red. So it was a pretty good night for them in that, in that area. Yeah. Do you think, you know, do you agree that there was this blue wave um, that the Democrats were have been pushing for the last few months? Yeah, I don't. So I'm imagining you probably listened to a lot of the same punditry that I have and like read a lot of the same articles and just it's got to be defined as either a blue wave or a split decision or red wave, like all those types of ways of defining it. I think I just look at it as a bunch of positive outcomes, whether or not that's a blue wave or not. I don't know. Like, I think it's a good thing that the House and all of its committees will now be headed by Democrats and that we can actually investigate Trump in the appropriate ways. I think it's really great that we won a lot more governor seats. I think it's great that a lot of like the state um, legislator legislatures have, have flipped. Obviously, the Senate losing those is the main counterpoint, right, to a blue wave. We lost a lot of Senate seats. Um, granted, we did pick up Nevada and Arizona, so that's always good. But for me, I just think there's too many positive outcomes to say it's not a blue wave, but it's also hard to say it was like 100% full victory and everything I wanted. No, definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think regardless of if it's a, a blue wave or a red wave, it's really it's great to see democracy work. You know, um, mm-hmm. midterms have, are set up strategically as a reaction to, you know, the, the most recent president election. Um, yeah. It, this is a, it's a chance for, or it's an opportunity for American voters to finally, you know, give their final input on what do they think at the local level. Um, so mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, again, I would know, I don't know if it's as big as a blue wave. I think it's definitely a very, very important and strategic victory for the Democrats. Um, but at the same time, I think it also goes to show that, you know, Trump is losing his popularity and, mm-hmm. And uh, I think Democrats are finally getting that fuel, finally getting that push in order to get that their voter base out there, because that's something that they've struggled with a lot um, recently. Yep. I I think one of the points you made that was really strong is your point about like just democracy in action and democracy working is just the amount of people that were engaged this cycle. You know, I think you saw one in a lot of districts where people may not have run contested races. There weren't just contested races, but there were upsets and there were things happening there as more and more people have chosen to run for office and be uh, civically engaged. But then also just the voter turnout, both across all demographics, but also in young people was higher than I've ever experienced in my lifetime. And I think I saw some stats like it was higher than they've seen in like 50 years in a midterm election. I think those are all positive things, especially because engagement is the best way to, especially voting engagement is the best way to fight against something that you disagree with. Right. I, I've marched, I've gone to you know, protest, I've, I've taken place in like different phone banks and things like that. But to see so many other people, not just marching, but actually going to a voting booth, making a decision, whether, whether they voted for a candidate that I like or not, just the fact that they chose to, to express themselves that way was, was, um, 
pretty incredible for a midterm. No, definitely. And I think, you know, and just besides the fact that, hey, look, it's, it's cool to see uh, a democracy functioning correctly. I think we also kind of learned some hard lessons, right? So I think the first being, well, actually, you know, before I even jump into that, I could say that it's nice to also see, you know, the demographics of, of um, the people getting elected change, right? So we have mm-hmm. so many women across the country uh, popping into office, which is incredible. We have people of color. Um, the LGBTQ community is involved now. It's So it's nice to see that the House is turning into what the United States actually looks like, right? It's mm-hmm. not just a, a lot of old lawyers who, you know, have been in the system for a long time. But just besides the, the good things that we saw from this election, I think we are also seeing um, the ugly parts, most notably just the wide, you know, inefficient voting system that we have been utilizing, especially in states like Georgia, in yeah. states like Florida, that still haven't been called. Uh, I just checked yep. an article probably an hour ago, and I don't think they still have any conclusion. And it just goes to show you that, you know, we've been in a country for 200 over something years, but at the same time, something as as crucial to our democracy, just tabulating votes, is still something that we're fucking up on. You know, like yeah. how's how's that how's that the truth? Still, how's this still an issue that we're facing? Well, not like that. I mean, it's like you brought up Georgia specifically, the amount of efforts that Kemp put in place to eliminate people of color and you know people in. Uh, from poor communities or primarily black communities to prevent them from voting, purging the records, purging the list, um, creating situations where there were 1,500 different uh, uh, voting machines that weren't even utilized. And you had high populist precincts that had three voting machines in the actual precinct. And they could have had these other 1,500 that could have been dispersed, shorten the lines, allow everybody to vote in a timely manner. It's intentional in my mind. It's intentional that a lot of these different voting pieces are falling apart in states like Georgia and Florida and you know other so- southeastern states. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I think it's intentional, and really, yeah. it's because again, these these uh, voting machines are utilized <laughs> not every day, right? It's once in a blue moon that we have to pull them out of the storage and and have them in schools and churches and whatever. So you would think that. The entire department that's just set up for mm-hmm. overseeing voting and overseeing the election in general. And we're still forgetting power plugs. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. Like, how how is that happening when you're dedicating so many resources and it's so nationally important? And I think, you know, you're right. The, the, the voter suppression is just it's just another way, you know, we're seeing the GOP changing the game that's being played. Mm-hmm. It's tilting it so that they're always going to come out the victor even you know just besides voter suppression um gerrymandering and just how how prevalent it is throughout the united states and how it's very much still ignored right the public Mm -hmm. doesn't really see it as an issue still you know it's just oh i guess you know government's doing what government does but it's detrimental to our democracy it Mm -hmm. is robbing it of what we you know what we're built on what we work off of which is one of the positives, I think, of the midterms is that even with gerrymandering, the Democrats were able to pick up so many seats. But when you look at like the voting breakdown, I think they're going to win by like seven percentage points. And it's still going to be a pretty minuscule lead within the House, like in relative terms, how many people are actually in the House of Representatives. It's, gerrymandering has caused a lot of problems. And then also, too, I think when you look at the Senate, just structurally, the Senate is set up in a way that is advantageous to the GOP. No, definitely. And and I think, you know, more importantly is, you know, I think we need to also start leveraging the technology that we have in elections, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I still, I, it still blows my mind that we're doing paper ballots in, uh, in a world where everybody has a phone, everybody mm-hmm. has an access to a computer or can, you know, uh, vote electronically. And, and, Again, people might bring up the concerns that, oh, my, you know, it might be dangerous. And what if uh, it gets hacked or whatever that may be? That shit is happening now. Like these paper ballots are purposefully being hidden in closets, in storage units, just the weirdest places. um, So they can't be tabulated. Well, also, too, I mean, if you look at Florida, how 
the Senate has like, like, especially in Broward County, right? Their ballot was drawn in a way where so many people just completely overlooked the the Senate, right? They didn't even vote on that race because they couldn't find it because their paper ballot was drafted in such a weird way. It's like four percent of the people that submitted ballots in Broward County didn't even vote on the Senate race, and that's unheard yeah, and that of. Yeah, that was a huge but, discrepancy, right? And compared yeah. to all other counties, yeah, it was at least four times larger than every other county in the state. And I mean. Obviously, Broward County is a pretty big Democratic stronghold. So those are all Nelson votes that were missed just due to poor ballot design that legitimately could have swung that election. Um, And also, too, like you mentioned about recounts and different things like that, votes being counted. Florida, I'm pretty sure after this, they're doing a machine recount right now. But in a couple of days, it's probably going to have to be a hand recount. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again in Florida. They've been struggling with ballot design and recounts for 18 years, all of these different elections since 2000, how they still not gotten their shit together? How can they still not figure out how to just adequately tell who voted for who and then chalk that up and tally it? And I think, you know, it's it's even more suspicious that, first of all, yeah, again, that huge discrepancies there, but also because the, the margins are razor thin, right? Yep. I mean, if you look at Rick Scott and, and, and Nelson, that's what I think point, uh, point 0.15% of, of mm-hmm. a difference. DeSantis and Gillum is even, you know, half a percent. Um, even uh, they have a, an, I think it's an agricultural commissioner race that's also being recounted, which is like one fourth of a percent, you know, it's, yep. it's so close that it kind of, it, it makes you think, okay, maybe because, you know, it is so close. That's why these these uh, these votes have been kind of messed with or whatever it may be, you know, because, again, like we're, we're talking about a couple of thousand people, mm-hmm. you know, of a difference between between these two candidates. So just kind of transitioning, I think it sounded like we both feel like the Democrats had uh, a really good night. It was a good night just for the nation as in whole, because, you know. One, the House is going to be able to provide some oversight to the executive branch, but then also to just seeing that many people engaged in voting. Transitioning from a lot of those positives, though, uh, as we saw a little bit, like literally the day after the election, Jeff Sessions was fired. Um, right. I know it's he resigned, but he was asked to resign. That's that's a firing <laughs> in every sense of the word. And I mean, I think it's just interesting. The request of the president. Yeah. I mean, how is that? If my boss was like, hey, I request that you no longer work here and I tell them I resign, that doesn't mean that I get to say I quit. I was fired from my job. Like, that's just reality. Um, but that just seems like a really big negative now because, as we, as we know, uh, Jeff Sessions is, had recused himself from the Russia probe. Matt Whitaker, who's pretty much a, a Trump lackey, has been put in place. And I know this is something that we, we kind of message about, but like, what were you just your general thoughts and opinions when you saw the sessions have been fired? I thought, damn, that is the most convenient timing, right? Like right after the midterms. I mean, we look at uh, sessions and, and Trump and their relationship this past year, and it's been ups and downs. You know, he's not really done a lot about Mueller and he's not willing to touch Mueller because, you know, he's, he's too afraid of the consequences. And Trump has really been kind of turning up the heat under yeah. him. Um, so it's really interesting to see that, you know, we had this past year of, of I mean, so many um, uh, Michael Cohen going down and, and Manafort going down so many times when Trump could have really just been pissed off and, and taken it out in sessions. But it's only after the midterms where, mm-hmm. you know, where once that uh, it was announced that, you know, the, the Dems have the house. That's when it was, all right, we got to get rid of sessions and really go into, into the safety mode. Yep. I, once, once he realized that I think, uh, Devin Nunes isn't going to be able to be a part of like the investigation isn't gonna be able to muck things up for him. And that's when, Oh, we got to get rid of sessions right away. And what's crazy about this is that he's been attacking sessions for so long, but sessions has been like one of his most loyal his longest and like most high profile endorser. He's been the most successful at pushing every aspect of the Trump agenda, but simply because of the Russian investigation, Trump's getting, you know, fired up. I think that speaks to, there's gotta be so much stuff in this Russia probe that Trump is afraid of and, you know, scared about that is causing him to lash out in a way and fire somebody that really 
is just as racist and, and has just as many white nationalist beliefs as he does and is actually able to act on them and enact them in a way that doesn't require as much headaches as when Trump opens his own fucking mouth. It's just no, really, no. really telling about the probe. No, I agree. And I think it's it's really funny that you say that because I don't, I mean, Trump's all, I feel like Trump's always been a pretty grumpy guy, but mm-hmm. really recently his temperament's kind of been escalating and you can, you can notice it. And the whole Jim Acosta thing that happened a few days ago, um, this morning he lashed out at, uh, a journalist from PBS, um, saying something like, you know, that's a really dumb question. And, and again, you can visibly see how angry he was. You know, I think at first Trump realized that he's got, he's got Congress under his belt, you know, like he's, he's just free sailing and he can say and do whatever and doesn't really matter. And so he was, you know, he wasn't as mad about the Mueller probe, but I think now it really is an immediate threat. And what, what I think is happening is once, you know, Dems uh, get in the house in January, they're really going to start digging in even deeper. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's scary. And I, I, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the the Time magazine cover of like Trump underwater, I don't know. Did you see that? Uh, it does not come into mind. Nope. So Time has essentially been releasing a series of covers of like Trump basically, you know, slowly and slowly becoming underwater because <laughs> the Mueller probe is just opening so many more questions than it is, you know, uh, answering any answers, right? And it's it's really funny because the Mueller probe is actually even making more money. Like it's it's running at a profit right now, just because so much money that they've confiscated from from Manafort, from Cohen, um, it's been in the wow. millions. It's been yeah. in the millions, and still, you know, all of these these indictments are out there, and all there's so many smoking guns, but Trump is still just denying the hell out of it in yeah. whatever way he can. And I think firing Sessions is is uh, another step of that. Yep. So one thing that you said there that I thought was really interesting is that you mentioned that, you know, obviously Trump's been really angry at reporters lately and reporters at the media. Do you buy into the narrative that Trump does things to win the news cycle, right? So a lot of people were saying he didn't want people to focus on the the Republicans losing the House, so he fired Sessions and make that the media story, or he wanted to focus on Jim Acosta and make that the media story. Do you think like he actually has any sort of strategic plan with the actions that he does to like control the narrative, or do you think it's just happenstance, it's reactionary, and because the media doesn't know, still, still to this day, two and a half, three years later, does not know how to properly report on him, that it just gives him the ability to gaslight and take over the, 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 the headlines. You know, that is a question I've been trying to answer myself for the last two years. Um, mm-hmm. Because really at times you think, damn, this guy just knows how to control the media, man. Like he, he'll say something or do something and we'll talk about it for weeks. We'll talk yeah. about it. For, you know what I mean? It'll just be the only, it'll be the only thing you see on Twitter, on NPR, on uh Fox on whatever, right? It's it's going to dominate the news cycle. But at the same time, you know, I don't know how much of it it's it is strategic and how much of it is just his tantrum, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that he does that I don't think there's a lot there's a good strategy behind it. Maybe you know the GOP is ten step ten steps ahead of uh, than I am, but I don't know. I just I just feel like a lot of it's just his temperament getting him in trouble. But uh, you know, because we live in such a a, a time where GOP's kind of just going along with it. Nobody really pays attention. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it. Hmm, I think it is. It's hard to tell, right? It, it, it. Part of me doesn't want to give him any credit, but then I also have to recognize that because he was tweeting about this caravan, like the caravan was on Fox News twenty four seven, and then as soon as he stops talking about it, they stop talking about it. Now I don't know if that's um, just the the natural collusion and interplay of like Fox News and their right wing propaganda or again if he's if he's actually intelligent enough to control the news cycle and keep his name in the headlines but going back to the russia pro matt whitaker um as it was jeff sessions chief of staff uh big trump lackey has now been appointed to the head of the russia pro just taking a step back like just he is. He has already expressed some in, in through various conversations and op eds that he's written and and interviews that he's done. He has expressed an interest in shutting down the Mueller probe. 
do you think like this is the death knell of the Mueller probe or do you think like the GOP Senate and a couple of other people and, and, and people of authority will be able to kind of allow Mueller to finish the job? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it's all going to be timing, right? Yep. So I think it's it's really a back and forth. You know, uh, Dems won the House, Trump fire session, gets Whitaker in place of, as kind of like a, another resort to start choking um, the Mueller probe. Um, but we'll see. We'll see in January who gets to it first. And because I know for sure if Whitaker even, you know, touches the Mueller probe or or defunds it, he's going to have a lot of heat, not only from Democrats, but also from Republicans. I know mm-hmm. Jeff Flake has recently voiced his concern about, you know, uh, prioritizing Mueller's uh, probe and, and really leaving him alone and keeping him out of politics, essentially. Um so yeah, the, I think it's, it's going to be a dangerous move for Republicans to, to to venture into that area. Yeah, but Jeff Flake is one of those guys that always says something and then immediately do, like does the opposite of a statement. Like I feel like Flake and Susan Collins and um, who's Lindsay the other Graham. one? Yeah, Lindsey oh, Lindsey Graham's lost his fucking mind. I don't even count that guy <laughs> as like a moderate right. or whatever anymore. But like Flake and Collins, like I mean, look at Kavanaugh. Like they they. they quickly counter they got in line they, they 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 obeyed like i can see them sending out tweets now hey we need to protect Mueller, and then not doing anything about it and if they they just don't seem to have the backbone to carry it through but i think there are some strong arguments about matt whitaker i mean kellyanne conway's husband george conway is sitting there writing op-eds talking about how this is unconstitutional um you know whitaker's got a personal connection to one of the key witnesses in the investigation i mean there's a ton of heat on whitaker today if he shuts down this investigation i mean i can't imagine a more obvious uh, obstruction of justice besides trump admitting to lester holt that he fired comey to shut down the probe oh definitely and i think it's it's interesting because it, i don't know if it's if this is trump trump strategizing or if it's a gop strategizing um, you know, I think a lot of us assume that it's one and the same, but I mean, Trump is a powerful guy. He sits in the most powerful seat in the world, right? I, mm-hmm. I think he's, he's able to call his own shots at this point. And the GOP kind of has to follow along. You know, they're, they're kind of tied to him. I think it's like Frankenstein's monster. They built him up and, and they really pushed so much money into him. And now he has such a stronghold that whatever he does the GOP then has to reevaluate its own positions and, and kind of shift to, mm-hmm. to match and align with them. And I, and, and I agree, you know, people like Jeff, Jeff Flake and, and, and uh, Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins, um, it's, you know, I have some sort of hope in them that they have some sort of a backbone to speak their own voice. But I don't know. I don't know if, you know, if they're going to, again, go along with what the GOP is saying and, and go into that shift whenever Trump says something crazy or if they're going to maintain their own positions. Yeah. And what's really crazy to me is just, I feel like if you're a Republican, you either fall in line with Trump or you retire. Like those seem to be the only two options. (laughs) That is very true. (laughs) That's what Ryan did. I mean, that's what Flake did. That's what Bob Corker did. Like those guys all retired. Now, granted, you know, I don't think they stood up to Trump anywhere near as much as like these actual, you know, conservatives or Republicans or moderates would say that they should have, but it's just very strange that he has had the power to completely shift the Republican party further and further. Right. And even McConnell's not standing up to him because McConnell wants the Senate, uh, the, the cabinet appointments and he wants the judicial appointments and all that. Oh my God. McConnell is one of the worst humans. Just, uh, oh yeah. So spineless. Honestly, worse than worse than Paul Ryan. But you know, it's you know, have, having said all that, it's just I don't know. It's it's going to be weird to see because there's going to be two scenarios. Either Trump is you know found uh, not guilty of anything and he's going along his own way and do whatever he wants to do for the rest of his life. But if Trump does get indicted, if he gets tried, and and we talked about this a little bit, but it's going to completely shatter the image of the GOP, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's even, it's in Trump's best interest to, to choke the Mueller probe, but it's really also in the best interest of the GOP to limit it as, as much as possible to put in all these roadblocks. I think Whitaker is just going to be, you know, the biggest example of that, but we'll see what else 
um, the GOP is going to do to, to stop Mueller from finding out whatever he does. Yep. Have you listened? There's a, uh, the podcast Slow Burn, the first season focused on like the Watergate scandal. Did you listen to that by chance? Or are you familiarized like at all with the, the, the Watergate scandal? I, actually, uh, yeah, I, I am familiar with the Watergate scandal uh, to a certain extent, but uh, I, I haven't heard of Slow Burn. Gotcha. Yeah. So I obviously like they they focused on uh, Nixon in the first season and the second season's kind of focused on Bill Clinton's impeachment. So I don't know if they're obviously there's a connection with why they're doing these two seasons with, with the Trump presidency. But what was interesting is that they were talking about the Nixon um, White House and how the Watergate scandal itself, they were able to kind of cover it up and, and everything. And Nixon didn't really become super unpopular until he made a lot of very active um, choices and decisions and, and performed a lot of actions to shut down the Watergate probe and the Watergate investigation. And then and only then did public sentiment turn against him. Now, Trump has more of like a cultish personality than Richard Nixon, <laughs> a lot more charismatic at least. Um, so I don't know if that same thing will happen, but the more that Trump attacks Mueller and the more that he tries to shut down this Russian investigation, I think that's where you start to see the moderate wing of not necessarily even the GOP, just like moderate human beings and moderate voters and, and moderate Americans, you know, really start to potentially turn against them because with a great economy and, and the economy is performing well, like I, we, I think that's right. pretty obvious, but like if you have somebody literally attacking the tenements of our democracy, that, that could shift public opinion regardless of, how other certain things that you know most traditional voters would would use to reelect somebody would 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 uh, factor in. So I guess you know you're trying to say there is a limit to how much uh, people will go along with Trump, and I'm um, I'm glad actually you also brought up the economy because it's really funny to see uh, the juxtaposition between how well the economy is doing compared to how well uh, or Trump's approval ratings. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. We should like him. Yeah. I think Americans by default should like him because the economy is doing so well. But he is that awful of a human being. Yep. He is, you know, he's, he's done so much other shit that's just turned people off that people have. And again, uh, you know, uh, employment numbers in almost every race and every socioeconomic group is the highest it's been in, in, in years. And that's great. So people have jobs, they have food in their bellies, but they still hate. Trump. Mm-hmm. And I think that just goes to show that, you know, it's not it's not all about the economy. I think after the 2008 crisis, we we focused on it as a as, a, as an electorate, but I think it's shifting. I think we're we're starting to realize that, you know, even though we have a good economy, there are other matters of uh of government like foreign policy, domestic policy, mm-hmm. social policy that are so so important and they're not tangible like an economy. They're not, they're not necessarily measurable either. Yep. Well, what's interesting about that is I, I think you're 100 right. I mean, with the economy buzzing around, buzzing as it is, and like unemployment rates continue to fall, Trump's approval rating, if he was a normal, probably like traditional conservative, like Republican president, would probably be in like the 60s, right? Somewhere. I mean, when you have a, a good economy, no, no foreign wars that like he's started or he's like initiated. It's just because of how trash of a human being he is, and like some of his anti-immigrant racist stances that he's taken has caused that approval level to stay low. But what's also interesting to me is that during the midterms, a lot of the exit polls say that people's votes were determined by healthcare. And so, and even in like a lot of conservative states like Nebraska and Idaho and Utah, like they voted to expand Medicare or Medicaid or I think it was Medicaid. Um, And so you see like, Certain policies, regardless of, you know, like you said, economy is like one thing that's buzzing around, but because people are now are so invested in their healthcare, like that's determining a lot of votes. And so if Trump and the GOP and, you know, obviously Paul Ryan's not in the House anymore, but like if they continue to attack like some of things like pre existing conditions and, and things like that, I mean, that could really continue to keep his approval ratings low. Um, Definitely. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you also brought up medi- uh, just uh, health insurance as well and healthcare in general because you know it's it, we live in a time where we live in a, such a, a great economy, such a great country, 
that's a massive world superpower. But if for whatever reason, you know, one of us got brain cancer tomorrow and had to get there or uh, get uh, treatment for it, we would most likely go bankrupt. Yep. You know, it. And again, this is a little bit off topic of just politics. I think it's more of a, of uh, you know, of a, uh, a concern of the state of America right now that we live in such a fucked up healthcare system that if you get sick, you're done. Mm-hmm. It's you're not going to be able to bounce back. You'll go hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt because you'll just be you'll just drown in debt, you know. And and they think that's why people are starting to 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 kind of put that on the same level as the economy because we pump so much money into healthcare, but most of our citizens are not reaping any of the benefits, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see how healthcare is you know, how it'll be continue to be an issue in in the next few years and, and how um, Democrats are going to handle it if, if uh, Trump gets out of office. Mm-hmm. So while you were saying that, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Like, obviously, that's a big thing. I was trying to figure out how we went from talking about Matt Whitaker to transitioning into, yeah. <laughs> into Medicaid expansion. Let's loop back to Whitaker for sure. That's the problem, man. Everything's like super connected and it's just there's a lot going on. Um, but the reason why I wanted to bring it back to Matt Whitaker and Jeff Sessions is obviously the Russia probe itself looking into, you know, the Trump connections to Russia and their interactions and potential collusion with, you know, Russian interference in the election and, and into essentially what I view as, you know, the American democracy and their right to vote and choose their their own uh, candidates. Um, I want to transition that because I know you have personally expressed like a lot of interest in Russia and in China and just how they impact and how they are impacting not just American elections, but also just like the American political system. And so uh, I want to just kind of pass that over to you, kind of let you quarterback this next section and, and kind of tell me like a little bit about like some of your thoughts, some of your passions in that area and and just um, you know open up the conversation in that way. Sure. Um, so to give a little bit of context to it, I, I took a, a class in college on um, – I actually took two classes. It was, one was like pre-Soviet U.S. relations and one was like post-Soviet U.S. relations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really just sparked my interest in Soviet Union and the United States. You know, I think me and you have grown up in a time where we've seen the U.S. as like this dominant world power and um, a mighty military, a mighty economy, and just having spread its influence really everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, re- the more you study the Soviet Union and, and modern day Russia, you know, the more you realize how obviously the, the a rich culture, language, um, uh, geopol- geopolitical spectrum, but at the same time, you know, you kind of see this larger game between the two. Um, U.S. And, and and Russia or Soviet Union had a, a massive cold year, cold war that lasted decades and kind of fizzled out during the 1990s. And it's funny because that's when you see this rise of Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy, Vladimir Putin, the more you study him, the more you realize that he's just in the right place at the right time. And, you know, it's funny cause, uh, I, I had that class in college and the elections happened, uh, where Trump was elected shortly after. And so you kind of see the parallels that, you know, Russia was at one point also a very close competitor to the United States, a rising world power. But after its economy crumbled, especially in the early 90s, you know, Russians were were lost. They were desperate. Um, they were kind of in shambles. And Vladimir Putin comes along as kind of this, you know, the savior. He has a very stern policy. He can, he'll eliminate his competitors. He'll eliminate anyone who challenges him. He kind of kind of like a no bullshit attitude. Mm-hmm. And and within the so I'm sorry, within Russia, he has a lot of popularity. And I'm sure he has a lot of uh, critics, but people really like him because, you know, he gets a lot of shit done. Uh, a lot of Russians really agree with his, his foreign policy and the direction he's taking Russia in just because, again, they're climbing out of the shithole that was the early 90s for them. Um, but, yeah, you know, that's just a, a short history of at least not a short history, but it kind of gives you a little bit better understanding why this election meddling is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because it's really a continuation of the Cold War. You know, I don't think the Cold War ever ended. 
I think it kind of died down a little bit, but it's still rising back up because just through a, a, a very aggressive social media campaign was Vladimir Putin able to manipulate an election. Yep. And I think that is such a big fucking deal. You know, like he did never were Russian troops on the ground. He didn't bribe any politicians directly that we know of. But just by manipulating something that we take for granted, social media, you know, your Facebook post, my Twitter, uh, Twitter feed, whatever. By manipulating that, he was able to change an entire fucking electorate. And I think that is just such a massive, massive issue uh, that's only becoming uncovered now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what's especially interesting uh, and also shout out to my one Russian listener. I saw that you downloaded my podcast this week. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's going to love this episode or, or she. Um, as I think what's really interesting about how Putin has impacted the election is not just through the Facebook post, right? Not just through the social media campaigns, and all the different fake accounts that they were able to make that, you know, really gave rise to a lot of the fake news and a lot of the, the anti-Hillary or anti-Democrat sentiment is also looking at how many U.S. actors were involved with Russian politics, right? Like General Flynn, for instance, or Manafort or Carter Page or all of these different people that Putin was able to get his hooks into I mean, shit, look at, I mean, Stephen fucking Seagal for crying out loud. Like, I said, like, <laughs> what was that? I know, about, like, when I said American actors, I meant like actors in our political system, not like legitimate American actors, <laughs> but like the amount of Americans that, due to, I guess, just financial greed, were allowed, have allowed themselves or have put themselves in a place where their ties to Putin and to Russia and to their financial benefit are stronger than their ties and their patriotism um, in, in reflection of like America. Right. Or, and, and, and you don't just see that from, you know, like the Carter pages or the, the Flynn's and the Manafort's like I mentioned earlier, but also the fact that our fucking president was elected while we knew he had financial interest in essentially what is a cold war adversary at this stage in Russia. You know, it's, it's just very interesting to me that that's, that that's occurred because it's not purely the social media aspect, which in and of itself is nefarious, but I think it's more nefarious when you track the money and the dollars and the amount of influence that he has in an entire different like subculture of people that can influence politics and policy and not just campaigns. Right. And I think it's even uh, it's it's a interesting note to point out that, you know, I think like McCarthyism was born within conservatives. Right. Like in the early 30s and, and 40s, actually throughout, I'm sure mm-hmm. the 90s in general, people were screaming Red Scare that you're communist and whatnot and, and just viewed Russia as just this foreign enemy. Mm-hmm. Viewed socialism and communism as a foreign enemy that was invading the US and we had to, to crush the ideology. But now, you know, Trump says things like, oh, me and Putin are friends, and all of a sudden that mentality has changed. Yep. Now all of a sudden Russia is is friendly. Yep. And if anything, Russia's only committed more war crimes in this decade than they have in the last few. Right. So it's 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 I don't understand why all of a sudden when this multi-billionaire asshole comes into office and decides to side with an enemy that you said was an enemy for the last six, seven decades. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you just change your mind overnight? I don't understand. I mean, I think it goes back to exactly what we were just talking about with why do they support Trump is that. You have a lot of people that are in power that enjoy power. And if their base loves Trump and Trump loves Russia, then they're going to be okay with Russia because they don't want to upset their base, right? They don't want to lose that part of the electorate. And so I don't think if you were to get Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and any of these other like Republican politicians in a room and you're like, hey, Putin's an asshole, right? Like you, you don't like Putin, right? They would tell you flat out that they don't, but they are not going to do anything that really rocks the boat or, you know, does anything that could 
potentially put them in a position where they won't win elections, right? They're not going to do anything to shore up our election right. system to prevent it from being hacked. They're not going to do anything to counteract Russian social media interactions and campaigns from that perspective, because that's not that's not what Trump wants. And they want to ensure right. that the people that will vote for Trump will continue to vote for them and put them in office and you know allow them to control everything that they control today. I, I think. Yeah, right. and I think. Yeah, right. Right. And I think it's it's even uh, I think it's even funnier that the, those people that, you know, are shocked that uh, a foreign government has, could even potentially interfere in elections. They're like, oh, no, like, how could this be a thing? And completely forgetting that that's what the U.S. has been doing in Latin America, mm-hmm. South America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia for the last century. Since Teddy Roosevelt, we've been doing shit like that. We've been yeah. putting in dictators. We've been, you know, removing even kill, not even even killing, definitely killing people that we don't want running specific countries. Yep. I think it's so it's it's very ironic that after a hundred years of the U.S. doing even Russia doing this, Russia has also done that um, throughout the world. That it's it's finally happening happening to us, right? We're getting a taste of our own medicine, and a country has become strong enough to get their, like you said, claws within our representatives, within mm-hmm. our government. So it's interesting. I I wonder if it's that another country has gotten strong enough or if America has just gotten weak enough that it, they have allowed themselves to be put in that position. Like, I, I mean, I, I love my country. Right. I, I love America. Like, I think it is a great nation. But the reality is, I mean, I do feel like in some ways we've weakened ourselves through our you know, just the nature of like partisan politics, right? Like how divided the right and the left are. And I know that's, that's a stupid, like big statement. And like, everybody will say that, but I think because of the division, we don't actively look at ways to improve the country. Like both parties look at ways to like beat the other party. And so because they're not willing to work together, it weakens us and opens us up to these types of attacks where that tribalism can easily be triggered by something as stupid as, a social media meme or Facebook post that Russia puts out or like fake, like they, I think I saw they did like fake black lives matters events and things like yeah. that, that because of the tribalism and just the nature of how our politics has shifted is left the door completely open for those kind of attacks to take place. And that could also be something even stronger than that, where it could be that we have social media completely unregulated in a way that allows foreign actors to, leave acting um and significant um kind of like fingerprints on actual american mindsets and and decision making processes no and 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 the reason i I mentioned that is because you know i don't even think this is about trump Mm -hmm. I, i think trump in the longer run is just a pawn really because you know the the thing about the united states is we're not very homogenous. You know, we have more differences. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of differences amongst our population. And social media, it was just the right opportunity to split uh, an axe, you know, down that wedge. Mm-hmm. And and Russia realized that and has done it. Because it's realized that, you know, we have a population that's that's diverse. We have all, you know, this, this far right. We have a, a huge Latino population, all these immigrants. Uh, we have all these differences and social media gave us a platform to kind of voice those differences. And by, you know, by exploiting that, I think Russia has, has caused this, this polarity mm-hmm. where we start to think that we are much more left than we actually are. or We're m- much more right than we actually are. And again, I, I'm not sure if, you know, that was planned either, but it, it sure seems like it, you know, it, it sure seems like it. And if you think about it, that is a brilliant way to divide or weaken a nation Mm -hmm. because you're doing it from the inside. You know, you don't have to even launch a missile towards the United States. You don't have to wage a war. You can just plant a seed of of mistrust within its own citizens and just let that shit, you know, sprout. Yep, sprout and fester and just continue to, like, eat away at the the body. Um, yeah, and, and, and that tied with the fact that you know they're also pumping in money through the NRA mm-hmm. and into the right wing, and like it's it's a multifaceted attack. It's it's there's so many avenues, and I feel like we're still being exploited, and we don't fully understand it. You know, it's it's 
I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what sense to make of it. But I, I do know that I feel like this is definitely strategic. This is definitely meant to make the U.S. weaker. And I think you're right. I think the United States is becoming weaker. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing, too, about Russia is that they didn't just, like, attack our election, right? Like, they went after the French election. Like, they tried to do dumps on that. They um, think the German election they tried to impact. And none of those right. countries were as susceptible to their attacks as ours was. And I... I think that's really telling um, and really interesting. And I don't know fully why that occurred. I think one of one of the reasons that I heard is that just the French media didn't allow that to happen and like didn't buy into it. Um, but I, I do find it very telling and interesting that the U.S. is not the only country, not the only election that they tried to impact and influence. But this is the only one that they were able to see huge success and were able to get the exact outcome and end result that they wanted. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of it's also just maybe, and again, maybe this is, you know, my me being naive about most of world history, but I feel like the U.S. specifically has a lot of social unrest in its history, mm -hmm. right? Because as we have such a diverse group of people living, you know, uh, things like the civil rights movement, you know, women's suffrage. We've had these eventful times in our history where, where minority groups have spoken up and, and kind of, you know, demanded their, their place in, um, in our government or in our society. And I think, you know, countries like, uh, Germany and, and France and, and the EU in general, they are definitely are not homogenous and, and are full of diversity, but I think not to the extent the United States is, mm -hmm. um, and not, and they don't necessarily have the same history that the United States has had because um, we've had a very violent history with with our social groups. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we've had the surge of the KKK and we've had, you know, and, I, and again, don't get me wrong. Europe has had Nazis rise up. So it's it's not like I'm, I'm comparing, oh, who's more evil? I'm just saying, I think we because our, our social fab fabric is, has, is structured so differently um, it was easier to exploit. But again, you know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Now we're now we're branching into like Russian interference into U.S. history. This is going to be a 10 hour pod episode. <laughs> if we get to <laughs> all of those. Um, right. Yeah. It's just. I don't know. What's crazy is like since it's happened, I don't feel like we've made any adequate steps to counteract Russia. Like there's been nothing. Right. right? And, and, right. and what's interesting too about Russia is like, yeah, impacting our election. That's a, that's a big fucking deal. Like that's, a, that, that's BFD fully capitalized, right. but also like just look at like what they're doing in Syria and Iran and like right. some of these other areas that they are having widespread influence and are leading to like body counts. It's just, um, I don't know. I feel like, it's not just on the U.S. Like I feel like it's like the U.N. and and a lot of the other um, countries also need to like start sanctioning them even more significantly than we've sanctioned them in the past and start taking actionable steps towards redu reducing their their influence and reducing the scope of damage that they can do. Not just for like American democracy, right. but like the democracy that exists in the European Union or or well the yeah, in the European Union, because they have gone after those elections, but also like what they're doing to destabilize the Middle East. And and that's not saying that America gets a free pass for the destabilization of, of the Middle East. I'm just saying right. there are there are. They're both yeah, assholes. They're both assholes. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. We just left it at that. Um, but yeah, just something yeah. needs to be done. And in the last two years, nothing's been done. And I think one of the. Getting back the, again, this ties back in the midterm elections is that what's happened now, too, because of the, the Trump influence is that you have more right wing senators coming into play where, you know, somebody like John McCain, who at one point would have stood up to Trump in regards to Russia, like he's gone now. And a lot of the the people that are winning these Republican Senate seats are right wing and are very close to Trump's agenda and alignment. And I don't think Russia's ever going to be fully held accountable until we have a democratic president or a democratic Senate. 
Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, you know, uh, thinking of this as a game, I, I don't even know if maybe Russia may come out as the winner. And that's really sad to say. It's really sad to say that, oh, you know, that uh, I feel like our democracy is kind of down the drain because I don't think so. I think there's definitely right. hope. But, you know, just just seeing the the political direction our country's headed in and just like this polarity that's happening. And I'm not even talking about just within the United States. We're distancing our own allies. We fucked over Canada. We fucked over the EU. They don't trust us anymore, you know, and just and I think that was what kept us together against the horrors of Russia, right? We we looked at our EU allies, looked at Canada. We said, all right, you know, at least we can agree on on these basic human principles. But Russia and Putin don't necessarily have those. They don't agree mm-hmm. with them, so they don't care. And by appointing, or not appointing, but by putting somebody like Trump in place, they've hit two birds with one stone. They've divided a country. And they've also divided this international, you know, sense of unity that we had with our allies. And that's, again, this is, you know, this is only the more reason we need to be more involved. Mm-hmm. This is only the more reason votes do count, man. And even if it's 20,000 in Broward County, I want them counted, yep. you know, because it's, it's a matter of having somebody who reflects our interests or having somebody who reflects the interests of, of, of a foreign body. Yeah, uh, 100%. And I think... The only way that we can truly get some sort of insights into whether or not our acting president and a lot of his staff and a lot of his campaign are loyal to the states over Russia is to continue to allow the probe to continue removing Matt Whitaker from that role of heading up the DOJ or attorney general and, you know, getting somebody in there that's going to allow Mueller to continue his job, punish those that have sold out right. their country in the act of their own, their own interest and the interest of Russia is the only way to really start that process of holding the right people accountable, turning the tide of public opinion about Trump and his staff and, and all the people that he surrounded themselves with. And, you know, the only way that we can do that is we've seen people marching in an act of protecting Mueller. We've, we've seen people vote to get a Democratic House in, in place to hold him accountable. And so I do think right. the midterm elections to bring it full circle. I'm loving this beautiful transition that I'm making here, <laughs> like the midterm elections and people's engagement and interactions from that perspective. Yeah. By allowing the, the you know. The, the House to now be able to investigate these things, even if negative things happen to the Mueller probe, are all positive outcomes. And I think that's a, a great place to kind of focus on is that there's a lot of hope following these elections. And, you know, maybe a lot of these things that we've talked about and brought up can start to be addressed. Yeah, man. Come January, we'll see. We'll see what happens, yeah. right? Um, so we are right at an hour. And that's typically when I like to stop. Um, Gerald, it was great having you on the show. Great talking through some of these things. Um, really appreciate your insights. I'd love to have you back uh, sometime in the future. Awesome. Thanks again, Tim. I, it was it was great being here and, and having uh, a chance to talk about all that.